Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, I started by talking about challenges to our unity. Talked about all the difficulties that we face in our relationships, whether marriages or families, parenting, roommates, at the level of government, on the road, uh, in the air, on airplanes, or in our geopolitics as we look at what's going on around the world today. So many challenges to our unity, so many broken relationships. But in that, in the midst of that, in the midst of that chaos, in the midst of our relational disappointments, discouragements, and brokenness, God has a plan for unity. It's my deep conviction. And I suggested last week that that plan for unity is right there in the text in Ephesians chapter 4, a chapter we've been in all uh, fall. And I suggested that that plan for unity is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to actually walk it out, to live in a manner worthy of Jesus himself, that we are called not to just a specific vocation or job, but that we're called to a person, and that person is Jesus himself, and called to walk in his way. And last week we talked about that his way is the way of the, do you remember? The way of the, not necessarily just the lion, but the Lamb, that his way is the way of the lamb, that he is humble and gentle and self-sacrificial, and that we are likewise uh, commanded to take up our cross and to live accordingly, to live in that meekness of, uh, in the way that Jesus demonstrated, and to take up our own cross. And maybe if you were here last week, maybe you left inspired, uh, but we're unclear as to what that could really look like practically. I gave a couple of practical thoughts last week, uh, but we're going to turn a corner today. This is kind of a two-part message looking at Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And we had something of our blueprint uh, last week looking at three specific questions. And we'll put those three questions back up again. Number one, what is God's plan for unity? And that's where we were last week. But today, how is unity actually possible and what does it look like? How is unity possible and what does it look like? And as uh, we did last week, uh, I know we were just standing for worship, but if if you would stand with me again for the reading of Scripture uh, as a symbol of honor for the text. And because it's a long passage, you don't have to read it aloud with me. I'll read our passage today, but you can follow along on the screens from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. You may be seated. I know it was a long passage, and I even hesitated on reading the whole thing this morning, but I was reminded of Paul's exhortation to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 to not neglect the public reading of Scripture. The Scripture is powerful. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Well, we are, like I said last week, normally I would like to go through the text verse by verse. This is such a rich passage. Um, But we're looking at it through the lens of these three questions. And if we were kind of looking at the big picture last week of the the calling, uh, of our calling to the person of Jesus Christ, today we're going to get far more practical, all right? And I want to give five tools today from the text to answer that question, how is unity possible. And anytime I'm in a setting where somebody's giving five tools or seven tips or whatever, it's hard to internalize all those at once. So what I would challenge you today is to be responsive by picking one of these tools and really planning on practicing it this week so that we can actually put the text into practice and be conformed to the image of Jesus. So as we go, what one tool really jumps out at you that you can uh, lay hold of and practice this week. And as we go, this is just a disclaimer. This is a very practical message. Um, I don't want you to lose sight. I don't want you to to forget that we're connecting the dots, that as we sit and watch the news and what's going on in the Middle East or what's going on in Ukraine, and our hearts break. And I have literally wept at my uh, computer screen as I'm watching the news over the past several weeks, uh, regardless of the, the people that are suffering and, and our hearts ache, and we want to be an answer to the world's problems. Well, here are some answers that I'm presenting to you this morning, at least. They're my convictions that if we can put these into practice in our small context, right here in Waco, Texas, or if you're here from out of town, we can begin to be part of the answer to the world's problems, that we can begin to heal the world's brokenness. And it's right to stay connected to what's going on and to pray Uh, But if we're not living it out here in our own context, then we are not a part of the solution. So as we go and as we're getting super practical, know that this is part of changing the world by changing our worlds. Amen? All right, so how is unity possible? I want to give five tools. Those five tools are surrender, essentials, prayer, service, and speaking the truth in love. Truth and love. Five tools just from this passage, God's plan for unity. And by the way, there are only two times in the New Testament that the word unity is used, uh, the the Greek word henates. And both of those are in this passage, verse 3 and verse 13. So this is, I believe, God rolling out. If we want to see the the people of God, the body of Christ unified, uh, the tools are here in the text. All right, so... Tool number one, how is unity possible? Surrender. Surrender. 
Last week, I suggested that if the cross is not at the center of our lives and our relationships, then we're not going to have the power to overcome the sin that divides us, the envy, the pride, the jealousy, the self-centeredness, the anger, the retribution, the bitterness, that the root of the breakdown in our relationships is sin. And there is no human solution to that internal breakdown, that internal problem of sin, that Jesus absorbed the justice of God on the cross, that through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit, Now, for those who submit to him, who surrender to him, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we have power to overcome the sin that ravages our lives and relationships. That if we don't start with surrendering to Jesus, there is no solution to sin. There is no solution to that ancient tension between justice and mercy. So that's a good starting point. If there's anybody here this morning and you have yet to surrender for the first time, to Jesus. You've been checking out this Christianity thing. The invitation is on the table this morning to surrender your life to him, to trust him for salvation from the penalty of sin, to be reconciled to God, and to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to have power to reconcile to others. But that invitation extends to all of us, not just as a first time of salvation, but an ongoing, everyday invitation to surrender to Jesus. And for the past 20, 22 years, I've tried to start just about every morning uh, by surrendering again to God, because my natural propensity is to turn in on myself to go my own way, to seek my own ends. And so uh, most mornings over the past couple of decades, I have started by just kind of going through an inventory of my life and my, even my body. And I'll pray, God, I surrender my mind to you today. Father, would my mind be a space of sanctuary? Would there be no thought that enters my mind that dishonors you? Would I, uh, help me to take every th- thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. I surrender my eyes to you. Let me not look, look with lust on any woman. Help me to see the way that you see. Help me to see opportunities, to see people the way that you see them. I surrender my tongue to you. God, let no unclean thing come out of my mouth, but only that which is good for building up and edifying and encouraging. Let no deceit or lie be in my mouth, my heart, God, my countenance, my affections, the seat of my affections. I surrender them to you today, my energy, our family, our future, our finances. I came from the dust. I will return to the dust. You are Lord of my life, and I surrender to you today. Would you take over uh, as we begin the day? Now, that's good to start the day, but then that is a moment-by-moment posture of surrendering to God throughout the day. And why is this a tool for unity? Well, because, as we talked about last week, we are bent in on ourselves because of sin. And so in the, in the context of relational breakdown in marriage, let's say, uh, I want my way. I want power. I want control. I want to be right. And so often, the path towards unity, uh, very practically in a relationship, is to be the first to surrender my pride to God. <laughs> to say, I am it, I'm at fault. Again, just my 1% uh, in most cases. Um, but I am at fault for my 1% or my 5% or more likely my 75 or 80 or 90% that I'm contributing to the breakdown in our relationship. I am surrendering to God that he will take care of me so I can be the first to ask for forgiveness and admit fault. 
And that's just at the level of a marriage or roommates, but you scale that up in the context of business and society, the people of God surrendered to God have power to be the ones to be the peacemakers. That's number one. Number two, essentials. Okay, how is unity possible? We surrender to God daily, and then we unify around biblical essentials. We cannot, as the people of God, continue to let non-essentials divide us. In verse 13, Paul talks about attaining to the unity of the faith. The unity of the faith. What is the nature of that faith? What are the essentials that unify the people of God? I think he summarizes in verses 4 through 6. These are the seven ones of Ephesians 4. Verse 4, it starts off, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The seven ones. You can kind of group those. He talks about one Father, one Lord, one Spirit. There is one God that we unify around. He talks about the one faith or the one hope, that there is one hope of our salvation, and that there is one baptism into one body. There is plenty of disunity in the church, right? If we're being honest and we look around, we have a long way to go. But I believe that in part that's because we've made non-essentials essential, and we have divided over those. Uh, Another way to think about this, if you were here back in the spring, I did a message, we talked about this, but just by way of reminder, uh, Al Mohler, who's a theologian, he has uh, what he calls uh, spiritual or theological triage. You can look this up if you want to read more about it. And he breaks down our beliefs in the church into first order, second order, and third order beliefs. And the first order beliefs being those universal, orthodox, ancient beliefs that have unified the church uh, for the past 2,000 years. And these are uh, spelled out in the historic creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed. And and essentially, they kind of follow that rubric in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Um, You're going to find the nature of God as an essential doctrine, that he is triune, that Jesus was incarnated, and so on. You're going to find the nature of man, that we're made in the image of God, corrupted by sin, in need of salvation. You'll find the nature of salvation, that it's by grace through faith, possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You'll find the nature of the church there. And there's so much more we can say about that, but we discern first-order truths based on biblical clarity and weight. So we don't divide over passages we find once or twice in the scriptures, though those are important and we need to have meaningful dialogue around things like the manner of baptism or, um, or church polity and so on. Those are meaningful dialogues to have, but they shouldn't divide us. There's enough power in the essential doctrines of the faith to unite us across denominational lines. It comes down to this practically. Uh, your and my favorite German theologian from the 17th century, Rupertus Meldenius. You were likely reading him last night uh, as you head to bed. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. We are not baptized into a church denomination. We are not baptized into a political party. We are not baptized 
into a sports team, but we are baptized into the church universal, which is multi-ethnic, multi-generational. It is made up of both male and female, Republicans and Democrats, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, black and white. Our highest identity must be in the person of Jesus. If our identity is in the person of Jesus, we can then turn and with charity have meaningful discourse about all these other very important things that we are passionate about. But until, until our commonality is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will continue to tear each other apart along the lines of non-essentials. And I don't mean that non-essentials are not important. They are deeply important, but they are not fundamental to who we are as the people of God. Uh, my wife and I are very different uh, in just about every way. Uh, she's an extrovert. I'm an introvert. Uh, she's a beach person. I'm a mountains person. We spend money differently, though I won't describe how. And, and, and just about at every level of personality. And that has caused friction over the years. Beautiful friction. <laughs> but friction nonetheless. It's been a wonderful opportunity for us to grow into the image of Jesus. But what I find is that over and over again over the years, when we kind of come to the end of ourselves and we can't find common ground in our personality or in our likes and everything else, we land in Jesus. And I don't know how else to say that. It sounds trite. It sounds patronizingly simple. But uh, I trust her because I know where she's going to land. At the end of the day, she is going to spend time with God. She's going to recenter on the person of Jesus. And we're going to come back to the table and we worship Jesus together. And so we cannot just work through our differences, but actually our differences can become a source of strength. And now I have, I've come to deeply appreciate what I used to think of maybe as moral flaws in my wife. Uh, I have come to appreciate as God-given attributes and strengths that when we work together, the image of God is seen when we find our common ground in Jesus. Or Jimmy and I. Jimmy's not here this morning, but... Um, we are very different, if you haven't noticed that yet. Uh, but we are rock solid in the nature of God and the nature of man and salvation, the nature of the church. So we can work through our theological or doctrinal praxis differences based in our commonality in the person of Jesus Christ. And we are stronger because of it. Him in a place of security, offering his many strengths. Me from a place of security, offering my strengths. And all of us together in all of our beautiful differences, united in the person of Jesus, able to turn around and offer our strengths together. Now, again, this is super complex. I'm not trying to oversimplify it. There are very difficult conversations that need to be had uh, in an ongoing way. But if we don't engage those from a place of charity, then we will continue to push each other away and divide. This is also why I don't believe lasting unity in secular society is possible. Uh, got a chart we're going to throw up just briefly. Secular society says that everyone is welcome and it doesn't matter what you believe. Everyone's welcome and it doesn't matter what you believe. The problem with that, and you'll see this kind of compare and contrast, we don't have time to fully break this down. You see on the left there, within the Christian framework, belief system, we believe that God created us. Because of that, he is the authority. Now, if you have a problem with that this morning, I would challenge you to wrestle with that. The biblical conviction is that God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You or I were not there. 
He is categorically different from us. We are the created. He is the creator. Because of that, he has all, and I mean all, authority. So when it comes to truth, how do we discern truth? What is the meaning of life? What is moral? What's right and wrong? What is the nature of humanity? What's the purpose and function of our sexuality? What is beautiful? What is valuable? Those are objective. They stem from a fixed point in God himself. So if there are disagreements among us, there is somebody outside of us who can arbitrate between our differences. Within secular society, we are just here by the product of time, chance, and chemistry. That means that the, we are the ultimate authority for our lives. Now, maybe you can make a case that, you know, because uh, we are uh, mortal, that, you know, we're, we're kind of bound by nature. But when it comes down to who, who dictates the decisions of my life, I am the ultimate authority if there's no one outside of myself. And so because there is no commonality when it comes to truth, because it's subjective, we are bringing all of these different viewpoints to the table. And when there are disagreements among us, there is no one authoritative outside of us who can arbitrate between those differences. And so what we're left to are these power differentials. And so whoever is the majority, whoever has the dominant discourse at the time, dictates truth for the rest. And that only holds together for so long. To have lasting unity, there has to be a, an essential faith that bonds uh, us together that has power to do so. And Jesus Christ, we believe, both lived, died, but rose from the dead and indwells us. And there is a substantial center of gravity in the person of God to keep us from flying apart because of the inertia of sin and self-seeking motives. So where secular society says everyone is welcome and it doesn't matter what you believe, the church says everyone is welcome, everyone is, regardless of your background, regardless of what you have done, regardless of what has been done to you, you have not disqualified yourself from the grace of God. And at the same time, it matters what you believe. The manner of belonging is exclusive. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life no one comes to the Father but through me. And we don't blanch at that conviction. Now is the time actually to double down on that conviction, to be unified in those essentials so that we have a core of strength that we could turn around and serve a world that is lost and is tearing apart at the seams. All right, just because we don't see this unity in the church yet in its fullness doesn't mean we don't contend for it. That's why Paul says, I urge you, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling, to uh, eagerly, eagerly preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All right, so we have uh, surrender. We have essentials. The third tool from our passage this morning is prayer. You guys hanging with me? A little over halfway through. Hang in there. Prayer. In verse 3. Paul calls this a unity of the Spirit, a unity of the Spirit. It is important to have our essentials nailed down, but at the end of the day, it's not just at the level of belief, but there is a deep dependency that the church needs to have on the Holy Spirit to work out the details, to work out the complexity of our relationships day to day. 
He'd go on to describe this a couple chapters later in Ephesians 6 by saying the battle that we wage is not against flesh and blood, but there are actual spiritual powers that aim to tear apart our relationships. And I don't know what background you're coming from. I'm I'm an analytical person. This is hard for me to tap into most days, but to connect with the fact that there are spiritual realities that are unseen, that are pitted against me. Therefore, we are waging a spiritual battle. That, That tension that is constant in your marriage is in part because of sin. It is also in part because there are demonic forces trying to rip apart your marriage because it is the image of God in the world. Your relationships that are fractured among your roommates and your peer group, it's not just because of sin, but because of these demonic powers. But verse 10, Jesus says that the one who descended is also the one who ascended, that he might fill all things, that he might fill all things. That's reminiscent when Jesus is teaching in John chapter 16 and verse 7. He says, it's actually better for you, speaking to his disciples, that I go away because when I go away, I'll send the helper to be with you, to guide you into all truth and so on. If you wanted to be with God when Jesus was on the earth, you had to be where Jesus was physically. If he was in Jerusalem, you had to be in Jerusalem. If he was at Capernaum, you had to be at Capernaum. If he was in Bethany, you had to be at Bethany. He's saying, it's actually better for me to go away because I'm going to send my spirit to be in all of you always to where no matter where you go, you are with me. And that's the idea of abiding, abiding, remaining in the spirit. Jesus would break this down in John chapter 15 in this image of a vine and branches that when we are connected to him vitally, that his life flows in and through us, the fruit of the spirit, love, Joy and peace, patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But when we aren't connected to the Spirit, the fruits of the flesh are evident, which he also enumerates in Galatians chapter 5. Abiding. This is an ongoing recognition of need. So day to day, it is in our marriage, let's say again, or parenting. I've shared some examples last week, but um, I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm at the end of myself. We're coming into family night, and, and all I want to do is you know, bark at my kids and bring peace to the chaos. And it's that pause just before walking into the dining room that says, Holy Spirit, I need you right now. In my flesh, I'm just going to be angry dad tonight. Would you... Uh, Fill me with the fruit of your nature. Give me patience right now. Help me to get into their world and not just mine. Uh, Again, it's driving and somebody cuts you off and it is tapping into the Holy Spirit uh, before reacting and asking for him to take control of my emotions and my reactions. It's before walking into the boardroom when big decisions are being made and just acknowledging, God, I don't have all the answers. Would you guide this business? Would you give us your wisdom? You created all things. You hold them together by the word of your power. Surely you have an answer to this complex situation with payroll and so on and so forth. It is an ongoing recognition of our need that God might appropriate his grace in and through us in our relationships. But more specifically, when we talk about prayer, we're talking about unity. Um, a lot of the breakdown comes around offense or hurt. We are broken people who uh, hurt one another. In fact, years ago, I don't know if it was Carl or somebody else that said something that stuck with me uh, all these years, that hurting people hurt people. 
When people are hurting, they hurt people. Hurting people hurt people. Inevitably, if you're in human relationship, you will be hurt. Those range from minor offenses to unspeakably traumatic um, abuse. And in a room this size, we could go person by person and weep at the stories of pain and betrayal and loss. So what do we do with that? Are we just incapacitated because of other people's failures? Well, I believe prayer, this unity of the Spirit is a way forward. And I want to offer you an, an ancient acronym, ORFIB. It's not ancient. I made it up this morning. Um, ORFIB. And uh, five words will come up on the screen. And this is just a process that I've uh, gone through now for many years. My wife and I try to go through when we are offended. It starts with offloading the pain. Offloading the pain. If you read the Psalms, you have tremendous latitude and permission to be honest with God. It's amazing what the Holy Spirit codified in the Psalms, the imprecatory Psalms, where... Um, David or some of the other psalmists are wishing harm on their enemies in some of the most graphic ways conceivable. And yet God is giving us permission, offload your pain. You intimidate your wife, maybe you husbands, you intimidate your children, but you do not intimidate God. You can be raw with him. You can tell him exactly what you think about that person and how that made you feel. And if you don't do that, it bottles up like a cancer and will eat you up from the inside out. But we don't stop there. <laughs> we would like to stop there. We don't stop there. The second step would be to receive from God. What do you think about that person? Remember years ago when Steph and I were just dating and we got into some conflict and I was upset and I walked out of the room to pray and, and offloaded what I thought about uh, my girlfriend uh, but then paused and just, God, what do you think about her? And I had an image that popped into my mind of some circumstance from her upbringing that was challenging, and it broke me. I began to weep and, uh, and was able to re-engage our conversation with empathy. Doesn't always happen that way, but it gives God space to help us to see, um, again, hurting people who are hurting people through God's eyes. Third, forgiveness. It is not an emotion though you might feel forgiving at times, most of the time it is a choice of the will. And often it has to be said out loud, God, I choose to forgive so-and-so for such-and-such, fill in the blank, making the choice. And you might have to do that over and over and over again. Intercession is the fourth point. So I have received what God thinks about them. I'm forgiving them. Now I'm interceding on their behalf. God, um, bless them. Would you fill them with your Holy Spirit? Would you heal the wounds that have led to this brokenness and so on? And by the way, these are the last things on the planet that you want to do in the moment. But this is, you want to wage war? This is where you wage war. You want to make a difference in the earth and you wish you could be, you know, at the political levers making big decisions? This is where the world has changed, by the way. These ancient tensions between Palestine and Israel have a purpose and a reason behind them that when you boil it down underneath all the complexity, these are human emotions that have not been submitted to Jesus and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God has not been appropriated to real relationships. So we can have all the opinions in the world, but if we are not appropriating the forgiveness and the grace of God in our own families, then there is no power. There is no 
authority to speak back to a world that's in chaos. So we're interceding for the person who's hurt us. And then we bless them. And I actually want to do that right now. I don't even know if we have time to do it, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, I'm going to put Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. This is a powerful blessing, the blessing of Aaron. And I just want to invite you to, we're going to take 45 seconds or so, and I want to invite you to think of somebody who's difficult for you to like. Okay, now you don't have to go to the most difficult person because we can't go through all five steps this morning in our time. Um, some of that might require counseling and process, and, but we're just going to practice. I want you to call somebody to mind, and you don't have to do this. It's just an invitation. But I, we're just going to pause, and I want you to speak in your mind. I want you to, in your heart, I want you to speak this blessing over them. And maybe I'm throwing this on the sound guys. If you can put some instrument, instrumental music on in the background, uh, that's great. If not, that's okay. We're okay with silence. But just for 45 seconds ago, uh, or so, um, just even just kind of pulling their face up in your mind and as if you're speaking directly to them, I bless you. I bless you. May God keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Just speak that directly to them in your mind's eye for just a moment. Appropriate the grace of God to somebody, really believing that they will receive this by faith this morning. Just take 45 seconds and do that in your own mind. Jesus, we bless our enemies. You taught us to bless our enemies, and it is so hard. We are so weak. So we ask for your grace, for your grace to live this way in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Two more practical tools, and these are shorter. We'll we'll, uh, move through these quickly. So we have surrender. We have essentials. We have prayer. Fourth is service. Service, verses 11 through 13. Paul says he gave the apostles. Remember, I just want you to latch on to one of these for this week. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And he goes on to talk about the maturity of the body as if Jesus himself are walking, is walking our streets and sitting in our schools and our businesses, that God has distributed his grace, his gifts to each one of us. Everybody say, each one. Does that include you? Yes, it does. Verse 7, he has already said, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Just pause for a moment. I, I get the privilege of seeing your faces, but just look around for a moment. Be awkward. Look at the person on your right and your left and, and spin around, look behind you. We have tremendous diversity in this church. It's beautiful. We have a diversity of experiences and backgrounds, of gifts and education, of relationships and resources. 
But why? Why would God distribute his gifts in this way? In verses 9 and 10, Paul described Jesus as one who had uh, descended, though God, Philippians 2, he didn't count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. So he descended from heaven. I'm not Jesus, but he came down to earth to live and walk among us and to be human in our shoes. And it's uncomfortable to have Jesus be so close to us and not just with us, but in us. And I won't attempt that uh, this morning, (laughs) but by his spirit, He broke boundaries, he stooped to our level, he condescended, and now he calls us to do the same. He used his power to serve, to bless. Why do we have gifts? It's not so that we can build our individual kingdoms, so that we can turn around and build the kingdom of God. It's not so that we can make a name for ourselves, so that we can walk in Jesus' shoe and make a name for him so that we can make others great and not ourselves great. So very simply, I would ask you, when you evaluate your gifts, if you're uncertain what your gifts are, just ask five or six people who are closest to you. Likely they can help you discern that. When you think of your opportunities, resources, relationships, what is the directional arrow of the use of those blessings? Is it inward to build up yourself, or is it outward to build up God's kingdom and others? Just a simple point of reflection. And then this week, if that arrow is pointed inward, how can I redirect the arrow of the resources God has given me to serve others? This is a tool for our unity. And then lastly, truth and love. Verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's a very practical slide I'm going to throw up on the screen. This is a whole set of teachings in itself. But when it comes to speaking the truth in love, most of us fall on one side or the other. A lot of us are very loving, but we... we shy away from being truthful because we don't want to offend somebody. Uh, Others of us are truthful, and yet that comes with an edge, and it is not very gracious or loving. And here the admonition is to speak the truth in love. So what is love? Love genuinely cares about the other person. And that ground is taken in prayer, by the way, until I am actually on your team. We talk about being meek like Jesus. That doesn't mean we're just walked all over. There is a time and a space for speaking the truth in love, but until I'm in it for your good, then I have work to do in prayer. But I genuinely care about the person. Love asks good questions and listens to gain empathy. It's cheesy, but you've heard it said before, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. We listen first to discern motives and intent instead of assuming, and we gain empathy that way. Love normalizes the experience of the struggle, not the struggle itself. Basically, all that means is I might not struggle with the same sins that you struggle with, but the experience that drives those, the loneliness, the insecurity, the fear, I can relate with. Those are universal human experiences. And so as I'm listening, I might not agree with the way that you vote or think about some issue, but when we spend time listening and gaining empathy, I can connect with something under the surface that is driving your impulses. I guarantee you. 
and love perseveres. Right, again, there's an asterisk there, of course. There's time for appropriate boundaries. But even then, the motive is for long-term reconciliation. But we also speak the truth. The truth points back to the person of Jesus. The truth focuses on identity over behavior. Like with our kids, I'll just take one of my kids whose name means builder. And so if he's torn somebody down with his words, the truth doesn't just point out the, the failure in his behavior. It says, that's not who you are. The truth is you were created by God to build people up, and we're going to call you up into that identity. The truth gently tests assumptions against reality. At the end of the day, it is my deep conviction that some ideas are better than others. And the truth speaks and lives with integrity. If I believe something deeply, if I'm convicted about it, then I have a lack of integrity if I'm not speaking it out graciously and in the right context. All right, that brings us to the last question in closing. What does unity look like? And Paul summarizes it in these three words. Unity in verse 3 is the bond of peace. The bond of peace. A bond, that's a strange word to choose, but a bond is something that constrains, confines, or holds together. Relationships are binding in that I can't just live however I want to live. It requires self-sacrifice to be in a relationship. Paul would talk about this in the next chapter, that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But it's not just a bond, it's the bond of peace. When we are appropriating the, the manner of Jesus, our relationships will be characterized by peace. We can evaluate the strength of our Christian relationships along these lines. Is there mutual submission and is there peace? And if not, then we have work to do, and we always have work to do. Why don't you stand with me as we close our time together? As we go into our time of response, what I'd like to do for the first several minutes is for you to turn to somebody before you respond in any other way. And of the five, and we'll throw those five up there again, surrender, essentials, prayer, service, and speaking the truth in love, what is your practical takeaway this week? A daily surrender to Jesus, um, getting clear or choosing to not divide along the lines of non-essentials, praying for my enemies, Serving, using my gifts and resources to serve the kingdom of God and others. Um, or speaking the truth in love. Maybe I've been out of balance and have focused on one over the other. And what I'd like for you to do is just practically turn to somebody and share that out loud and pray for one another for the, the power of the Holy Spirit to actually make a change this week and to work towards unity in our relationships. So if you think about that and then turn to somebody, share that. What's your practical takeaway? And then pray for each other. If it's your first time here, you get a pass. Glad you're here. Um, but if this is your home church, this is your point of response. Share that with somebody. Pray. And I'll pull us back together in just a moment.
keep sharing and praying with one another if you're still going. As our prayer teams are available, if, if you're part of our prayer teams, and once you finish praying, if you could make your way down to the front to be available. We're going to sing one last song of worship to respond, but you keep sharing, praying for one another. And we'll respond through one last song of worship. <laughs>